0: Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove.
1: We need money to make things function. And if we recognize that, and if we don't make it a dirty thing, we can understand. We can't move the ball forward without different sorts of means. And some of that is ideas, and part of that is money as well. What I wanted was to put my head down and do a good job. What everybody else wanted was to showcase me. It's great, it's also exhausting. Whether I try to or not, I'm gonna be an example. So what can I do with that? They need to know who you are. They need to see that you're working. I don't wanna go in and put my head down and not have anybody know who I am. That's not the point of working.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A, HUBZone, woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io.
1: Thank you so much for being here this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. What time does your daughter go to school? The au pair is taking care of it today, but eight o'clock is when she goes to school. So we have a little squeeze in the morning and uh, I sent her on her way. (laughs) Where's your au pair from? She's from Brazil, which is nice. We all lived in Brazil for four years. So I get to practice my portuguese that's awesome
0: is your daughter learning portuguese
1: she is she is she also thinks she speaks all the languages because of Encanto. so she speaks spanish and she speaks portuguese (laughs) and sometimes we listen in french and so she's like yeah mom i speak all those languages
0: How did we first meet? I think we met at a fancy JP Morgan event at the, what is it? The Pendry. The
1: Pendry. Yeah, it was at the Pendry in Baltimore. uh, And I met both you and, and your husband. It was our holiday party. We had just opened the Baltimore office and yeah, we met there.
0: It was a fabulous event, and uh, the Pendry Hotel is is great. I was also excited to see the ballroom had the same wallpaper I have in my dining room. Is that right? I felt very a uh, designer esque. You're yeah. basically
1: a designer. There you go. Yes. That's your other your other career.
0: <laughs> J.P.
1: Morgan is a huge
0: sponsor of the Fort Meade
1: Alliance. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's a partnership that we've had for several years and hopefully continue. We can continue to, to keep growing and, and partnering with the Fort Meade Alliance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of which, our gala is coming up again. <laughs> <laughs> so In, we have a 2023 <laughs> gala, uh, Mina, to let you know about that. But, Thank uh, you.
1: <laughs> I will share it with the, the powers that be.
0: <laughs> the Fort Meade Alliance Foundation, which is the um, fundraising nonprofit arm, just put together. It took 10 years in the making. We were able to gift several million dollars to the U.S. Army to help them build a resiliency center on Fort Meade to help with the recovery and thriving and daily life that everyone needs to, to get through and to help make our warfighters stronger. So thank you for being a big part of that.
1: JP Morgan is proud to be a supporter and thank you so much for sharing that too, because we love to know how, how the dollars are are being implemented. And and because you sit on the board there, you have sort of intimate knowledge. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah,
0: I think there was not a my eye at the event. It was such a so many um colonels who had overseen the garrison were there and men and senators, state senators were there. It was a very exciting time. And I think it's great that we're talking about mental health and all of the aspects that make up wellness and thriving. So even one of the major things that was a big highlight of the new resiliency center is a kitchen where people can take cooking lessons and learn how to cook and be healthier. So that's tied to money and wellness uh, and self-sufficiency so that you're not always ordering the takeout or eating processed food. What is your day job? Why are we, why are we even talking? Why did I rope you into this?
1: <laughs> I am a banker. That's my title. So I work for JP Morgan in the private bank and my official title is banker, but I think we're also relationship managers. So I work with individuals, families, nonprofits, and we help individuals and families when they're going through an inflection point where they sort of need to go through a liquidity event or planning, um, say for retirement, or they're exiting their business or some sort of milestone has taken place where they need to reevaluate where they are. And our job is to build a team around you as the individual, around the family, and give the best advice that we can for our clients. So we work with trust and estate advisors. We work with CPAs. If it's business related, we work with M&A attorneys and we try to make you feel prepared. So if you don't have that person on your team and you need a referral, we can do that as well. And we really just try to share best practices so you can go forward in the next phase of life, feeling as prepared as possible.
0: So, how many people do you have like saved in your favorites for your speed dialing on your phone? Like, <laughs> I, many,
1: have, I don't I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> I have a spreadsheet. It's a spreadsheet. It's yeah. not like Salesforce. Well, we have a CRM system for sure, but it depends on the day. It depends on the, the client. It depends on the environment. So when there are a lot of deals getting done, like, you know, you're calling M&A attorneys and sort of saying, you know, how can I be assistance? What's going on? You know, what deals are we working on? When it's tax season, it's all the CPAs. When it's the end of the year, we're talking to the trust and estate attorneys to make sure that the trusts are are in place, um, to make sure the charitable giving is going to take place. So depends on the time of year and, and the phase of the market
0: even though you are largely focused on dollars, you know, spreadsheets, excel, i would imagine that what you're doing since you're talking about big inflection points is a bit emotional with clients. It's a very vulnerable time even if it's a positive like there it's a big influx of money or something happened where they now are coming into money. So do you have like a box of Kleenex in your office? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That would be for me. (laughs) It is, you know, money is a very emotional thing. You know, there's so much tied to it. There's a lot of ambition. There's a lot of hope. There's, you know, wishes for what we would want for the future. And so I think we all know this as bankers that, you know, it, the relationship is built on trust and you have to have trust. And so, yeah, sometimes there are tears. Sometimes there's, you know, happy points. I I certainly recall I have a client who was going through a divorce and before we even started talking about money, we were talking about what that new phase of life is going to look like. We have to build trust to do that. And so I think... Uh, you kind of just have to be accepting of the situation you kind of have to think about you know what the person is going through and it's it's not you don't start the first conversation with money i think it that's unless somebody's like okay let's get a deal done and i'm ready to do it most of the time it's it's about listening and observing first and trying to figure out and meet people where they are
0: yeah it's so vulnerable i mean it's exposing things that you might not share with anybody you know you hope the people are sharing it with their spouse <laughs>
1: <laughs> Actually, it's, good. it's funny that you say that because one of the things that we try to do and me in particular is to meet with both spouses because in in fact the perspective is different and sometimes one spouse is focused on, you know, what the return is going to be, what the asset allocation looks like, what the end product of the portfolio should look like. And the other spouse might say, well, how are we providing for our kids? Or what is our sort of footprint? How are we looking at things from a charitable contribution standpoint? And you need both to make sure that you kind of have a holistic view, because what you don't want is at the end of the day for a client to be unhappy or to feel like something has not been expressed. Um, And so it's really, it's not even one check-in. You kind of check in at the beginning and then you kind of check in almost every, you know, if not once a quarter, uh, at least, you know, twice a year and say, is this, are we still on the pace? Are we still on the path that, that you originally thought, you know, what are the things that have come in to play that weren't there before? And especially when you're saying, you know, sometimes there's Something that's happened, either you know, physically or mentally, and you know, you sort of have to redirect. And you know, children need more assistance, or you know, we need to downsize for a house, or we sold our business. We want a bigger house, we want a boat, and all of those things come into play. Uh, and you sort of have to step back and reevaluate and make sure that everything makes sense and is reflected in the portfolio.
0: Yeah, it's such a big deal. It's how do you want to live your life? How much money do you need? What's the trade-off of? The money versus the time, the freedom that it's, the money can afford you or not afford you, because you're tied to working and you're not going on the vacations, or you bought the boat and you're not enjoying it, or having those discussions which sometimes are uncomfortable because it could be at odds with the spouse. You know, like someone just really loves working, and so it, it's not even about the money. It's just that's how they like to spend their time, where the other person wants the time together. Yeah, I had these discussions with my friend of like, well, what, what amount of money is the right amount? And so I think for me and with you, it was, here's what my base level goals are. And really anything past that is gravy. And then I'm a spender. So I am concerned (laughs) that I at least have a system in place where I tuck uh, a portion of the money away, but I am allowed to spend some portion of it, right? Like it cannot be all pure investing behavior. And I say that too, because I'm also aware, like sometimes uh, you die sooner than expected, right? With my mother passing away when she was 65 versus say 85 or 90 so it's this balance of enjoying your life while still making smart choices for the future that's my real goal is to make sure that i am structured where you're like here's what you can go by here's yeah. here's the percentage so what is that roughly like a third or a fourth
1: i wouldn't put it at a percentage but i would certainly look at like you know this is the trajectory right and we let's say that we have we want to have something that We want to look at your bills and kind of say, this is what you're spending already every month. This is everything that you're spending. These are the costs that you have for your kids. These are the costs that you have for your business. Uh, And then on top of that, an amount that you feel comfortable with and what you want to sort of put away and then allow to grow for the future. So we kind of look at what you want to preserve, what you want to spend, what you want to sort of divide that you'll have for, for later and then what you want to grow if you think about it in in those kinds of terms, and then you allow us to sort of dig in and sort of say, I wanna have that boat in five years time. So what do I need to get there? Or I wanna retire, you know, at a certain age. So what do I need to get there? A lot of times people sort of focus in and zone in on like what I need to be doing right now, but we have a trajectory. And so I think it's good to sort of step back from that a little bit and say, okay, if things keep going along this line and I have enough contingencies in place where if an emergency happens, um, I'm okay that's the sort of mindset that we want to get to because if you're looking at the at the markets every single day you're going to stress yourself out you know yeah. so but i will say something that you said that was sort of struck a tone with me my father passed away when he was 63 and when my mom had to deal with finances for the first time you know she was very uncomfortable with all of the decisions that she just didn't know, right? She had never, she didn't pay the bills. Um, She knew what they were, but she was sort of removed from them. She had the bank accounts and she was sort of like, okay, I know I need to pay the bills, but how how do I look at my finances? How do I plan for it? She's very nervous throughout the experience, and I think that almost solidified the work that I do now because I wanted to make sure that that you feel comfortable, that you feel prepared, that you feel like you can have those conversations. And so I think it's incredibly important to talk to both spouses. And I really like to spend time with, if there is a husband and a wife, the wife to sort of say, "Hey, are you part of this process too?" Because a lot of my friends will go, oh, "Mina, you know, I don't really, I don't really uh, deal with that kind of stuff. It makes me uncomfortable." And I go, "Well, you should." You should. I mean, I'm not asking you to pay all the bills, but you shouldn't certainly know where, where what they are and what the plan is because, you know, you're a part of that, too. So I really sort of try to get them involved in the conversation and I check in and I go, hey, have you have you talked about the bills? Did you go through it with your with your spouse this month um, just so that it, it sort of destigmatizes the level of discomfort around it?
0: Yeah, it can have a lot of anxiety, One is like double checking, I actually have login access to all the accounts, (laughs) like, and consistently practicing logging in that I know of all the accounts and where they are because everything is so electronic based. So, having that cheat sheet of where are all my accounts and actually logging in, which, you know, with the long passwords, the resetting the passwords, and the double authentication, that actually is a pretty big barrier. I have like a trust but verify, right? Like there's what Brian tells me, but I got to go in and look for myself, right? Like, I have is observed it- that. <laughs> really, these transactions really happening. Brian and I need to talk monthly about it because I get like physically I can feel the stress in my body even if it's nothing wrong. I think the more you do something regularly, the more you can hopefully address the issues or
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I would say If you are not talking about money on a regular basis, then go ahead and implement that, right? Once a month, even every two weeks, I used to do, I used to have a little reminder on my calendar every two weeks around paycheck comes in, just check in with your partner and sort of say, hey, like, is there anything we need to discuss? Or like, should we sit down? And then once a month, sit down and kind of go through the budget and kind of make sure that you're on track. But demystifying and sort of just that idea that, you know, it can be stressful to deal with finances. Are the bills paid? Yeah, great. Are we putting money towards something that we're saving towards? Great. Do we have enough for vacation? If we don't, do we need to cut back on anything? Or, you know... I think just that having that conversation and feeling a level of comfort. Now, this is, you know, we're talking about kind of your day-to-day finances, right? This is, we're not getting into the the planning for, you know, when Shana sells her business and she's making millions and, you know, she's planning and doing tax mitigation. But I think both of them are important. You kind of start and say, let's talk about money. Let's not make it, let's not make it a big thing. Let's not make it an uncomfortable thing. And your kids are older, so you can actually start to talk to them about money. And then it sort of makes it a family thing, right? Hey guys, are you saving anything? Like, what are you going to buy with your, I don't know, do they get allowance? <laughs> my, my daughter has a piggy bank. So she's like, oh, really? Putting, yeah. So she's like, I'm getting, she's like, mommy, I got, you know, I got money from, from my aunt for my birthday. She's like, it's going in my piggy bank. So I'm like, all right, I've already got a saver on my hands. Right. So, <laughs> I, so I so then we can talk about what she's going to spend it on when it comes to Christmas or something like that. And J.P. Morgan does this really well. They have a, a sort of booklet called "Children and Wealth." I think it's every age from six to twenty-two different phases that you can of um, life for kids, and you can talk about different elements of finance from that initial kind of saving and spending to you know growing an investment portfolio. So there's no wrong time to to talk about money.
0: Do most people come meet you at your office? What are the meetings like with you?
1: Before COVID, we certainly most first meetings, we go to the client wherever they are. Um, if it's in the business and they want to show us the business, if it's in their home, we'll go to their home. If they want to come into the office, they're always welcome. But because we're, again, we're beginning a relationship and we're building trust. We sort of want to meet you where you are. You know, with COVID, um, I have some clients who I never met in person. Uh, we met over zoom, uh, or we met by phone. And then certainly made an effort to meet after the fact, but, you know, it's, it's really whatever the the clients want, you know, sometimes there's an imminent deal and they just want to, you know, they have a recommended partner and they say, okay, I really feel comfortable with JP Morgan being voted best private bank. And so I feel ready to move forward and we kind of go, okay, let's pump the brakes. Let's make sure that every, you know, we tick all the boxes and, you know, have our due diligence go through on both sides. It's really just about meeting you where you are.
0: Want to stay up with the latest on Outspoken? Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Also, if you like what you're hearing, please be sure to take a minute to rate the show too. If you have any topics or suggested guests for the podcast, please email us. We would love to hear from you. Outspoken at nyla.io. How does a young girl decide that she wants to grow up and be a banker? And I have this image of like, <laughs> I don't know. Don't be mad at me for saying this, but <laughs> but do you remember in Mary Poppins, Dad's <laughs> a banker?
1: Oh gosh,
0: <laughs> outside the bank.
1: <laughs> I don't, so how does a young girl that was the, the best representation, <laughs> representation <laughs> of a banker I've ever seen. <laughs>
0: How do you watch Mary Poppins and decide that's what you
1: want? <laughs> you definitely, you probably wouldn't off of that unless you really liked, you know, the suits or the, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I didn't look at Mary Poppins and say I'm not to be a banker.
0: I mean, that was the image, right? Of like this old white man, very strict, formal, and you grew up and you went to the friend school which is not known for its rigid rules and formality, how do you decide that this is where you want to end up?
1: I certainly say, I don't think I had the most direct path. So I did go to Sidwell Friends and I was a a lifer there and I cherish that experience. It it was great. Um, And my parents worked at the World Bank. So we spent quite a bit of time traveling internationally and, um, and I thought, for sure, I'm going to go into nonprofits. This is what I was born and bred to do. Uh, it's very kind of reflective of the, the, the schooling and the upbringing that I had. I went to school and I was studying sociology. And my father said, you know, just, just take an economics class. And I go, absolutely not, Dad. Like, you're a PhD in economics. I don't want to do what you do. And I took one class and I fell in love with it. I thought it was so great. So I became an economics and sociology major. And when I first graduated, I worked in public health. So I was doing contracts for USAID, and I was still sort of on this trajectory of doing international development and working with nonprofits. And I decided that I was kind of doing work that was too removed. And so I went to, I got a fellowship and I went to India for a year. And I wanted to be on the ground and I was on the ground kind of working with with grassroots organizations. I was working with non, I was actually working with um, migrating populations and there were sugar plantations. The parents and the families would migrate every year and come and cut the sugar cane and they would bring their whole families with them because it was three to six months. And the kids would drop out of school because they could They were out of school for so long that when they came back, they couldn't sort of re-enter the education system. They were falling behind and they had really poor re-entry rates. And so what I did was work with an an NGO or a non-government organization and create these sugar schools on the grounds of the sugar factories. And they would be supplemental school systems. And I spent a lot, I spent this year kind of with these nonprofits and they were doing such great work. I mean, I just thought it was the most amazing thing, but they had no funding. They were going to the government to try to get a grant, then they would be able to spend that grant. They would run out of money, then they would have to go back. And it was a very sort of inefficient process. And they were always, I mean, they were always fighting over money. It was, it was kind of painful, even though they were doing amazing work, but they were always there was so much stress around money. And I pivoted some of the work that I was doing and said, okay, let's build up some reserves here. So I helped them put together kind of a, a deck when we went to the um, local government and we said, here's the work that we're doing and, you know, allowed them to kind of have materials that they could kind of talk to and share so that there was information going out ahead of their kind of, pitch, if you will, and really just kind of create structure around the NGO instead of just doing the on the ground work. And as strange as that is, it was probably the most helpful thing because they were like, oh, somebody's looking out for us. Somebody's, you know, helping us to plan and we can do our everyday work. And that was probably the foundation for me wanting to support mission-driven organizations or me wanting to support individuals who were trying to fulfill their dreams. Of course, I didn't want to come back. You know, I was like, I'm absolutely not coming back. I'm living in India forever. And um, my father was like, please go to graduate school. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, apply somewhere. And if you don't get in, we'll have another conversation. So I applied to Columbia and I was like, I'm not going to get in. Like, I can stay in India forever. It'll be great. And then I got accepted to Columbia. So (laughs) I had to come back. But I came back and I sort of said, okay, let me look at all of the tools that I need to kind of continue this. Like someone should be a go between, between a a sort of, you know, a bank, you know, a larger institution and the mission, the person.
0: What did you study at Columbia?
1: So I did a master's in public administration. Um, I still studied. um, Oh, wow.
0: You say not finance and not an
1: MBA. Not an MBA. um, Although I did take several classes at the business school at Columbia. I came back and I was kind of like, well, you know, maybe I'll use this and I'll work at the UN and I was sort of on that path, but I I had it in the back of my mind that, you know, I needed to have this language, this skill set and I needed the accounting and the corporate finance and I needed all of that, but I wasn't sure how to how to use it yet. And it wasn't until I sort of started working that I kind of went, okay. My first set of internships and things like that at the UN, I was like, this is great. But again, I feel kind of removed from the process. And so I, I, I did pivot uh, into into finance. I was at first I was an analyst at Moody's, and then I worked. I went to a hedge fund. I worked in asset management.
0: One thing I think is interesting is in engineering, we call this root cause analysis. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting there working and you're trying to solve the problem of the education of these sugar farmer children and they come up with the solution, but the solution is not stable because it needs the resource of being able to pay the nonprofit salaries, right? These lower salaries of just continuing to build this process and system and maybe even lobby the government to make it where the, sugar factories are also paying for this eventually, or that it's built into some of the taxes. Sure. But I also think it's interesting because I don't know if it was like, thanks to your father and working at the World Bank, but I feel that there's sometimes a lot of shame around focusing on money and saying, they need money to do this. Money is not a dirty word. It is a resource. It is a tool. And sometimes if you do not have that resource, you cannot do anything. People can only volunteer so much. People still need to feed their own children. They still need to clothe and take care of themselves and and have money for, you know, traveling to visit their own family. While you're focused on mission, you still need money to achieve the mission. Did you feel any stressors around that? Like here you were growing up with this like very public mission focus. And now you're like, well, I really need to help with the structure and the flow of the money.
1: I think you hit it on the head. I mean, before I went to India, it was very theoretical. And I said, well, you know, I don't really want to deal with money in that way. And then I was on the ground and I saw the wonderful work that was being done. And then the teachers couldn't get paid. We didn't have any furniture in the office because that would be money that was not going towards the mission. And I sort of thought, we need money. We need money to make things function. And if we recognize that and if we discuss it and we, and we don't make it a dirty thing, then we can understand And we can sort of move forward, right? We can't innovate. We can't move the ball forward without different sorts of means. And some of that is ideas. And some of that is energy that we put into the work. And part of that is money as well. I mean, that's why everyone has to go through fundraising in order to get their business off the ground. And I think from my background and my roots, really having to sit down and say, okay, this is something that I'm typically not dealt with. And this is something that might be difficult for me to engage in a conversation with, but if it's difficult for me and I'm an individual, then how much harder is it for an organization? So let me be that person who is a go-between and try to figure out how to weave through the system and be of aid to people who are trying to get more money.
0: People look at business owners or they think they wanna go into business because they think it is a path to wealth. And it can be, but it takes money to start a business. And your income goes down typically because you're paying other people.
1: Yes. Paying
0: yourself last and you are taking such a large financial risk. So for us to even get our first loan, we had to sign our car and our house away, right? Like to say like, yeah, you can take our car and our house if the money doesn't come. Now, fortunately, government contracting is relatively low risk. In my marketing business, we sometimes didn't get paid by the customer. We sometimes lost money because we ended up eating it, right? Like something the customer wanted and we decided to give it for free. But I don't think I understood how big of a financial risk it was and how suppressed my income was relative to employees Mm -hmm. as well. That Because to attract the top employees, the ones who are willing to go to a, a risky company you typically have to pay them a premium so that they can feel more comfortable with the risk.
1: And you can sort of look at it now and say, well, look how successful you are. And it was all worth it. But when you're going through it, it's really quite challenging. And so... Oh, I still
0: don't say that, Mina. <laughs> like, oh my God, what did I do? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we say that. We look at you. I mean, you can look at entrepreneurs and, and kind of say, you know, there there's so much passion there. And I think this is part of What I love about my job is really being able to support people and their passions and going, my goodness, like Shayna couldn't be doing anything else. This is what she's meant to be doing. So how do we help navigate the system to get her and her business off the ground and be successful?
0: What type of analyst were you? What did you focus on when you were an analyst?
1: I was an operations analyst. I was an operations quality analyst. So if you think about the the rating system. So there was a time where Moody's was trying to rate hedge funds and they were doing what's called an operational quality analysis or an OQ rating. And so we would go into hedge funds at the time and evaluate their entire non-investment process. So how everything from, you know, the procedure to sign off on wires to the way that their compliance structure looks like to key man risk, you know, anything that you would sort of do on the due diligence side to make sure that, you know, if you think about the time, maybe around 2006 or so, um, hedge funds were kind of emerging and everyone was going, well, what is this? And they're taking a lot of risk. And I'm not sure I feel comfortable, but there was just a lot of money that was flooding towards hedge funds. And so in order to sort of legitimize and evaluate hedge funds, uh, Moody set up a process to try to do that. And so we would go through and it was just kind of my first way of looking at a company and like literally all the innards, like all the inside, what are the, where are the areas where they might potentially, you know, fraud somebody, you know, they could, they could potentially, you know, take a very risky bet and take the money of an investor and, and lose it or make a ton of money on it. But like, how do you distinguish this from gambling? Let's just say, right. And over time there was more regulation and there were more processes in place, but very early on, it was really like, Hey, we have an idea and we think it's great and give us your money. And you know, we're off to the races kind of thing. So that was kind of my first real look at how a company is put together and how a company can grow and scale and what needs to be in place to to scale that business. And I loved it. You know, I was sort of like, yeah, I can I could do this. I can do this. Right. But and
0: then, did the hedge fund recruit you? They sure did. Yes, they <laughs> did. <laughs> You're in their office every day.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: That's always an employer's worst, like especially with consultants, <laughs> that the client recruits your employee.
1: Yeah, it wasn't quite that easy. I mean, I first of all, it was around 2008. And so there's a lot of turbulence in the market. And when I joined the hedge fund, they were ramping up. So they went from 160, I think, employees to 190. And then within three months, they were back to 160. So clearly, I, I survived the cut. But it was one of those things where you were looking around every single day. It was like a Pink Slip Friday thing, right? And you're looking around and you're like, am I going to make the cut? And it was incredibly you're stressful. Like avoiding the HR. I literally wouldn't. I was like, I'm going to walk in, go to my desk. I'm not going to look at anybody. And then I was sort of like, wait, that's not ex- that's the exact opposite of what I should do. They should see me. There should be visibility. I should be smiling. Like... They want me around, right? And, you know, I think it goes without... it, maybe, maybe I should say it, but there was nobody else around that was Black. There was nobody else that was a Black female. And so I was like, I don't know if what I'm doing is going to keep me here. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I have no guidance. I have no structure around this. And so I just worked hard, you know, and I worked hard every single day. And I was kind of like, okay, i made the cut this week. Okay. All right. Let me keep working hard. I'm going to make the cut next week, you know, that kind of thing. So it was a very different environment than being an analyst. I can say that for sure.
0: Did you feel like someone up high was watching you and that you had a comfortable relationship? Or did you feel like you were slightly on the outside? Even if you're doing a good job, right? Like I will say from my experience as a software engineer often the men hung out together and I was not part of their conversations. Right. So they were a tight group. I actually didn't have issues with my leadership as much. My leadership was good. It was the pure knowledge and relationship that I was often excluded from. Yeah. They had habits and behaviors that I didn't like, like, uh, one example, they stayed late every day to play video games on the computer, on the work computer system. And I was like, I got to go work out and make yeah. some food. Like, so that was
1: my experience. I certainly think somebody was looking out for me. Um, I had a mentor and he had come over from Moody's before me. So when he joined the the hedge fund and I sent my resume, I made sure that he knew and I would certainly guess that he was instrumental in, in being helpful. He said, I can't get you the job. You have to do that on your own, but I can put your resume in the hat. I leaned in on that relationship. I was sort of like, what don't I know? What is being said that I don't know? Um, because I wasn't in those rooms. I wasn't in those conversations. I, you know, There were a lot of traders that were sitting on the desk and I don't even think it was late night hours because some of them would be like, okay, the trading hours are done, we're going home. But during the course of the day, you know, there's just camaraderie that comes from all those men kind of sitting on the desk together. And you're not part of that if you're not, you know, on the trading desk. But what I knew is that, well, I could say this now, I don't, but at at the time I knew I was working hard and I knew that they knew that I was working hard. And when I showed up, I was like, Hey guys, like, this is the information that I need. We're getting this done. Like, if not, I'm going to pester the shit out of you. I'm going to pester you." know. (laughs) But also, you know, I mean, even when I left asset management, I came back, and there were a number of documents that were that still had my name on them, and because I was creating those documents, so again, I was sort of creating process, and I was creating legitimacy because I would come from this other side, and I said, guys, this is what you need in order to thrive and to continue. And so, I think the combination of having a mentor, lucky enough that that person was in the office as well, so I could kind of check in and go, hey, I'm having a really bad day. I feel like I'm failing here and them going, no, you're doing a great job or here's where you could adjust. You know, I mean, I think actually this is Jim. This is the person that during 2008, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Like people are getting fired every day, left and right. And he goes, they need to know who you are. They need to see that you're working. And I have taken that advice and it's a very small and simple thing, but I've kind of taken that advice through every job. You know, I don't want to go in. And put my head down and not have anybody know who I am that's not the point of working and there's a great kind of quote going around Instagram now and it's like you know every day do a little extra over the ordinary and then it becomes extraordinary you have to cover your basis you have to do your job but you can do a little extra on top of that and people can know who you are and that sort of allows you to to bring your full self to work every day and enjoy the work that you're doing
0: a lot of people view that as distasteful of uh, this idea of well i'm simply doing the job so i should automatically be recognized but i find that that there's small behaviors such as documenting a lot of what you've done capturing the metrics like taking the notes of it went from you know 1 to 10 in this time frame and having those measures and having it ready to speak up as well. So being prepared for those on the spot conversations. It's interesting because it's not something major, major that you need to do. But unfortunately, marketing and communication matters in addition to knowing. And it, like, as you said, it was the difference between being fired that Friday or sticking around. It's letting people know that you did the work. This is why people often hire companies is because they know someone there, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's down to those relationships and what they see. And the more they see, the more they know, uh, and it becomes more legitimate. And it's interesting because I think there's this shame wrapped around too, of like bragging or having to speak up, but it does make the difference.
1: It can be a lot if you're not doing it regularly, right? And there's a little bug in the back. It's like, it's just like finance. If you do it regularly, it's not painful, right? But if you're covering your basis, if they know what you're doing, you're not sort of popping up once a year or once a quarter and like, you know, trying to make a big presentation because people are busy. It's sort of like a constant dripping. Hey, I'm here. Here's what we're doing. Like, you know, no, I want to share with you, but not this sort of, you know, full core press. Like, you know, and then you don't hear from them for a year. Right. That's, yeah. that's not that's not what you want to do.
0: I think all of these are reflections of habits. And the nice thing, I think when you're trying to start a habit, it seems pretty overwhelming. But eventually it becomes your normal. It doesn't mm-hmm. become as awkward. And eventually you forget that you had to even learn that behavior. How would you go from a hedge fund to
1: moving into private banking? So there's a little bit of a jump there. So at the hedge fund, I was uh, I was in New York, um, and I had worked in in finance in New York. I moved home because my father passed, and I wanted to be closer to my mother. So I moved home for family reasons. And quite and frankly, are you
0: an only child.
1: No, I'm a twin, actually. I have a sister. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. Is yeah. she a No, not even close. <laughs> not even a little bit. She's like four inches shorter than me and very sort of big, bright personality. Where does she live? She just moved to the D.C. area during COVID. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So she was in Brooklyn in New York. So actually that worked out and we would meet in her. Oh, that's great.
0: She's got the melodious voice.
1: She does. (laughs) You probably heard her in some book or uh, New Yorker or Atlantic article or something like that. And then both of my parents grew up in Ghana, but my father actually migrated from India in 1947 after the partition of India and Pakistan. And in Ghana, they were helping to foster businesses. My dad's side of the family came from India and stayed in Ghana, and they're still there today. My mom's family is Ghanaian, and she grew up in Ghana, and they met in college.
0: Your father's family already had a
1: business, or they decided to start a business, given the environment? So they were already doing business, but Ghana was actually trying to foster business and had a program where if there was a 50% partnership with a Ghanaian owner, that the government would help to, I guess, give some subsidies uh, and help to support the business. So my grandfather went from India to Ghana to start this business and they have stores all over today and they're called Nankani and Hagen. So Nankani is the Nankani and Hagen was the Ghanaian owner.
0: That's so interesting. So your father had an experience being a minority in a country and growing up kind of culturally mixed, which is yeah. very similar to how you grew up. You know, you had these two immigrant parents, right? So you're mm-hmm. a first generation American mm-hmm. and knowing what it's like to be an American, but also to be an immigrant. That's really interesting.
1: I cherish it now. I think at the time I was like, what's going on? <laughs> Where do I fit in kind of thing? But, um, you know, it's one of those things that I'm I'm very grateful for now. And my dad did a lot to instill Indian culture in, in our family. My mom did a lot to, you know, instill Ghanaian culture. And, you know, even this past Christmas, I took my daughter to, to Ghana. And oh, wow. She, yeah, she got to see both sides of her family. Um, and so it was it's wonderful. So you're back in D.C., I'm back in D.C. I was actually working for what's called an outsourced CIO, so it's an OCIO that focuses on nonprofit organizations, corporate pensions, in Arlington, Virginia, by the name of Strategic Investment Group. So I was working um, with nonprofits again, with mission sort of driven organizations, and building long-term investment plans. And when the private bank was growing. I mean, it's still growing. It's always growing. But when it was growing, they wanted to build out that practice. They wanted to share, let people know that they were um, also in the business of building portfolios for nonprofits. And so I went over for that. And then in the course of that business, realized how much more there was to do, how much more um, advice and how many more tools we had in our belt uh, and started working with individuals and families as well.
0: And that's how you ended up at J.P. Morgan?
1: Yeah, so they specifically called and sort of said, we're building out this practice. But for me, J.P. Morgan was a no-brainer because when I was on Wall Street in 2008 and there were margin calls from banks every single day, the partner that we relied on the most was J.P. Morgan. The culture of the firm reflected the business that we wanted to partner with. So I knew the name and and I sort of went through the due diligence, but I had already had, again, kind of in your mind, you're sort of like... I want to go with someone I trust, you know, and it was a big shift for me. I had never gone to a bank, right? I'd never been in an organization that was more than call it 150 people, 60 people. I wasn't sure I wanted to kind of go into this like huge institution, but I think even big organizations, you can make feel small if you have a good compass. And if you know that, you know, your team is rooted in the right, in the right way. And the people that I met, Particularly, you know, my market manager and and my coworkers. I thought, you know, this is this is something that I will that I will try. And if I don't like it, I will leave. Um, and four years later, I'm still here, so I've been enjoying it.
0: You are in J.P. Morgan's private bank, and there is also this Chase Wealth Management. What is the difference between the two, and where would someone typically
1: start? There is overlap between the two for sure. Chase Wealth Management is typically an advisor-led approach. So you have an advisor that you're working with throughout the process that helps you to build your portfolio, do your finances, answer your questions. um, And that's kind of your, you've got a point person or a point advisor. In the private bank, we lead typically with a team approach. So I will help manage relationship. I also sit with an investment specialist. For example, we have a wealth advisor who's a former practicing trust and estate attorney who can help review documents and give comments and sit in on meetings with trust and estate attorneys. We also make recommendations for CPAs and trust and estate attorneys. And we have something called the Advice Lab, where we have experts and specialists who look at everything from employment agreements to um, exit strategy to philanthropy. And we all sort of work together and surround, whether it's a client or a team of clients or a business, to help uh, at an inflection point. So typically a business owner that might be selling their business uh, and transitioning out of it or even having advice to stay on. Um, For a couple of years, we have a team that can help advise in that way from everything from the advice side all the way down to cash management. So what's going to happen on day one and then how we plan for the the individual or the family into uh, retirement and into next generation wealth. So we really look at our skill set as kind of a team approach and we work together and we surround the client with the best practices and advice that we can give.
0: When would someone approach wealth management versus private bank? And how do you know where to start?
1: What we like to say is that there's a place for everyone within J.P. Morgan Chase. And I know that sounds a little cheesy, but like there is honestly from, from if you walk into a branch and you want to open a personal or a business account, or if you are at a point of inflection, or if you just want to have, you know, day-to-day banking or day-to-day business and you want to work with an individual. So at any, at any level and at any type, there is, there's always the right fit. So, you know, we just want to help where we can.
0: I think that's the beauty of J.P. Morgan Chase is that there's these multiple line of businesses that can support you for a very long perspective and really build that relationship from when you're just getting started and thinking about having your company and what that looks like from having a commercial bank and how you should just do your bank. And then when it's 20 years later, 15 years later, and you're ready to sell... And what's the optimum way to sell, and then to manage your plan, and to make sure you not only have your kids' college paid for, but like you know, could you afford the weddings <laughs> and, and other gifting or gifting to society and giving back that you may want to do? And and I think the world-class advisors and and understanding and having them really be tested across many people who have who have experienced similar things. A lot of times, people feel like they're alone. And they're the only person going through it. But we're one among many and people have seen similar problems before.
1: Every situation is specific and unique, but we can learn from every client that we work with and we can share that advice. So that's what we're here for. So if
0: someone is listening to this podcast and they're like, that's it. I need to take the first step of improving my finances overall. Can they reach out to you? What's the best way? to take the next step with JP Morgan.
1: Yeah, I think they can reach out to me. They can walk into a branch. They should I mean, if you are ready and you feel that you're ready then don't wait. That's the first thing I would say because it takes a little bit of mental preparation, but it's it's worth it, you know. You want to have a plan and at the end of the day you want to be able to execute on that plan and having somebody to assist you do that is what we're here for. So, you can email me or you can LinkedIn me or whatever it is, but um, they
0: can reach out to me and I can pass on your email. So they can DM me and ask, say, I want, I want to know more and I'll connect you.
1: And I'm happy to help.
0: So what do you say to people who feel that they are uneducated about their own wealth management, about investing?
1: How do you get started? Honestly, I say like, have the conversation, like, don't shy away from it. And I, maybe this is indicative of me because I'm like, I never, if there was somebody told me something was a challenge, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go do that thing.
0: Yeah. You I, sound very comfortable with like a lot of difficult things. Like I'm like, wow, these are a lot of uncomfortable situations and challenges. And you're like, oh, mm, I'm just
1: going to figure that out. Like, oh, doop, doop, doop. I'm just going like to. Cha- I like a challenge. And I sort of like this idea of let's get messy let's figure it out. Let's, you know, and it's not going to be pretty at the outset, but you learn from everything along the way. Right. And so if you're scared of it and you sort of shy away from it, then you're doing yourself a disservice. And maybe some of that comes from traveling quite a bit when I was younger and being among cultures that I was unfamiliar with, or, you know, learning to sleep on the floor and learning to live without electricity and all that kind of stuff. But all of that, was like, I don't know, those are those are joyous times, you know. We spend so much time kind of inside our heads and trying to figure out am I doing things right? And and you kind of have to live in the world as well. I just love the idea of saying, hey, this is something I didn't know how to do. And now I know how to do it. You know, like I was doing home repairs on Saturday and I was like, wow, I can't remember I remember the time where I was terrified of cutting a hole in drywall because I thought my house was gonna fall down, you know, and now I'm like, Yeah, it's just drywall. Like, you know, no big deal.
0: <laughs> so just keep doing it, just keep trying.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you have to recognize that you're not great at everything. And if you ask the question to somebody else and you allow yourself to sort of expose that you don't know something, you might find greater treasures in that. And somebody might say, hey, I don't know that either. Or here, this is what I know. And this is what you know. And let's put it together one of the things that I learned more and more is like, you know, when I was in by myself and, you know, single kind of black woman in finance, I was like, Oh, I have to be the best because that's the only way that I'm going to be able to be here every day. And it's not, it's not that it's like, I belong here. And what I don't know, I'm going to find out, but I can do this job and everybody can do the job. You can, you can put yourself, your mind to something and you have no idea what you can accomplish. So don't limit yourself by sort of saying, you know, I have no idea, so I'm not going to do it. That's just, you're just limiting yourself in that way.
0: How did you deal with
1: standing out just by the nature of being a Black woman in banking? There was what I wanted, and then there was what sort of everyone else wanted, right? What I wanted was to put my head down and do a good job and just be there every single day. And what everybody else wanted was to showcase me. Hey, you're on the website. Hey, like look at oh, our God, blog like, every picture. I am on every yeah, website. You know, I'm on every pamphlet. I'm on,
0: <laughs> you know. Every channel. every volunteer activity, right? Yeah, like, I was you know, like. I feel gosh. like it's actually nice and it's negative because you're being pulled in at a rate to do things that the average person you're working with isn't right. Like you're being asked to volunteer, you're being asked to mentor, you're being asked to give yes. and they are not. So it's almost like this huge portion of your time is focused on being the literal walking example.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm getting to my bitterness. No, but no. Like, I think you, you... Oh, you're
0: a woman. So you need to do all this volunteering and you need to be on this talk. And I was like, why can't some of these dudes who get to go home every night, like I can't give constantly. I got to put my oxygen mask on and I want to watch, my real housewives. Like, right. I want to eat some popcorn
1: and <laughs> Right. This is a podcast. So, like, you know, we can tell, but I'm like nodding my head in like in agreement. I'm yeah. like, Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, by the way, you should be on this board and you should do this. And hey, can yeah. you talk about this? I'm like, no white man is being asked to do this. Why am I doing you know, I want to do my job too. And it's it's great. It's also exhausting. Those two yeah. things exist in the same vein, right? I kind of go back and forth. There's one I remember somebody saying, you know, you can walk into a room. And you have to spend the time and energy to know everybody in the room. But when you walk into the room, everybody already knows who you are because you're the only one there. And I sort of, you know, it took a little time to kind of lean into that. But I was like, if I have a platform, if I have a voice, I will use that. But I also have to be mindful of reserving energy for myself, of being able to do my own thing as well. But also, I know that people are looking at me, whether I try to or not, I'm going to be an example. And so what can I do with that? One of the initiatives that have taken place at JP Morgan that I'm really proud of is this thing called Black Wealth Initiatives. Black Wealth Initiatives is under this umbrella called Diverse Wealth Initiatives. And the idea is to sort of hopefully not to be the only one and try to create some you know, synergies across the bank because there's maybe one banker in DC and one in LA. But the idea is to sort of share that JP Morgan as a whole is being intentional about Black Wealth, about diverse wealth and having those conversations. And I think to be perfectly honest, like I am signing up for this one. I'm putting my hat in the ring for this one because I do want to share that this is important to me. I'm happy to do that.
0: JP Morgan is also a big sponsor of the Women's Presidents Organization. I was invited to a fancy dinner at the conference. This year is going to be in Vegas, which will be fun. It rotates East Coast, West Coast every year. And JP Morgan has a big focus on these
1: more underrepresented groups. I think it's always been part of the narrative, but I think with social media we're able to reach a broader audience. I certainly think the private bank has spent a number of times. We have a we actually have these events called the Well Prepared Woman, um, which we did for the president of WPO and a number of the members, and really just saying, you know, let's spend some time just with women, right? Because there's so much intelligence and there's so much heart. And you're already doing the job, but let's focus some of the efforts towards what will get you towards the kind of next phase. And so let's talk about all the stuff that you feel uncomfortable talking about in public, but you're in a safe space. So let's let's chat about it. And I love that we get to do that. Again, it's kind of what makes this job great. It's not that big, cold, you know, banker image. It's this very personal, advice-driven relationship that's built on trust and somebody being able to say, hey, let me raise my hand about this. This is something I don't know about. This is something I'm uncomfortable with. And I'm in a group of my peers and I want to chat about it. And then what is great is that within five seconds, there's always at least one other person that says me too, right? And then you don't feel alone in that. It's almost like a give and take, right? We see individuals who are doing such a fantastic job in their in their world with their companies and organizations. And we get to help. And they look at us and they go, okay, a woman in finance, like this is such a rare thing. And I have questions and they want to know what we know. And yeah. I'm happy to share that. So it's it's really such a nice relationship partnership that we get to give that advice and and everybody grows from that.
0: Yeah. And I think there is a nice balance between formal meetings and having clear events. But what should happen from those things is a relationship where you're able to ask things more on demand versus, oh, a formal mentorship program or a formal, you're yeah. coming here and eating this salad with this chicken at this <laughs> lunch, but right. having almost like a texting relationship or, hey, I just want to be bopping or get the info shared and Every women's president's meeting I've attended, I get one nugget that is a pretty big rudder for me that changes things enough to really move the needle. And I find that so interesting that sometimes it's, again, I like the term root cause analysis, but it's like, what is the one thing that really affects things strategically versus just a tactical change? even if it is a tactical change of like, you got to look at your finances more often, it ends up being a strategic move because it ends up being more comfortable. Is there a book that you have read that really affected you personally or professionally?
1: I love to read. At one point I was, during COVID, I was part of two book clubs. So I was like, (laughs) so it's not, the question is not that I don't read. The question is, (laughs) the problem is that like, my favorite book is usually the last book that I read, you know. Um, and I just read this book called "Lessons in Chemistry," which was about a woman. That sounds
0: very dry, by the way. It's it it, First of all, it was yeah. It
1: sounds it does sound it dry, sounds- but it was nonfiction. It was about a well, I will say female scientist, but even in doing that, I'm sort of negating the the whole reason the book was of her sort of narrative in the book, because she's like, I'm not, I'm a scientist. And there were a lot of men who were trying to put her in a role as being a mother or being an assistant to the scientist or being, you know, just a housewife. And she was like, no, I'm a scientist. And just that sort of constant shifting of the narrative, where by the end, she was like, they were like, yeah, she's a scientist, you know? And it was, I think I just... It was nonfiction, but I really loved it because I was like, you know, sometimes you have to tell people and then you have to tell them again and then you tell them what you told them already, but, you know, they have to see you the seven way times. That you, yeah, until seven you... so times
0: they finally, like, remember even the word that you said. It becomes common.
1: That's right. So I would say that one, but I would also say, like, I mean, I love that J.P. Morgan does this. They put out this annual book list called Next List. They put out a ton of books. And so I always go and almost cheat and say, okay, well, what should I be reading? There's one book this year by David Rubenstein called um, How to Invest that is on my nightstand already. That will, it's a little dry. I know it's probably not like, you know, the sexy (laughs) stuff, but then it's also matched with another book from the next list, which is Edward Enifel's A Visible Man. And I don't know if you're familiar with Edward Enifel, but he's the chief editor of British Vogue, but he's also a gay African man from Ghana and both of my parents are from Ghana. And so I'm very excited to read that next.
0: What advice would you give your younger self?
1: I wish I had created a community earlier. You know, I really felt like, particularly in finance, that, and I was friends with all of the guys, but I was often the lone female on the desk or I was the lone analyst, right? So even though there were other females that were married, they went home after five o'clock, it was just me. And I think I felt like there has to be a woman in finance, in a hedge fund that sort of, you know, is just in the exact... Looks just like me. Looks just like me. And I was like, I can't find that. That's not here. And so if I had broadened my scope maybe a little bit and sort of said, Hey, and I am, I'm not saying I didn't have, I have friends, obviously. Right. And I hung out with people who are a lot of public health people that I'm still friends with today, but really just sort of having somebody to bounce your ideas off to say, Hey, does this, how's it going for you? And really share that experience because, you know, our jobs are tough, right. And and things are stressful and, you know, we sort of need to have community to help us go through that.
0: There's this big myth or story that we tell which is largely that a mentor needs to look like you Mm -hmm. and once I finally learned that that's a lie that's been hurting me I realized how much richness there is from people who are a white male who grew up with all the privilege and A lot to learn, and I'm friends, and I get along with them, and we laugh yeah. and
1: we learn. And yeah, my yeah. mentor was definitely a white male. I mean, that that's, that's what yeah. available. I mean, some <laughs> of my best friends yeah. are white males. And just... Me too. It sounds <laughs> horrible, right? No, but I, I honestly, I think that, and and also just paying it forward a little bit, right? Like, you know, we're at a point where if there's something that you know how to do well and you see somebody struggling, help them, right? We all need help in our everyday and we may not even recognize it. And And I just think that I wish that I had spent a little more time um, investing in in those types of relationships. And I'm very grateful for the friendships that I have now, but, you know, certainly in the work environment where you're kind of spending so much time and it's really stressful that you have camaraderie there as well.
0: Tell me something about yourself
1: that might surprise us. I guess I'd say I'm a huge Formula One fan. I mean, maybe that's something. Yeah, I love Formula One. And my daughter loves it and we watch it all the time. And she's a huge Lewis Hamilton fan and she's screaming at the TV. And it's just something that we got into together. How Um, did that
0: come to be?
1: We traveled a lot internationally. So I've been to Monaco. I've seen the track there. Um, My family lived in Brazil. Um, It was a big, You know, race when it came to Brazil. And then, of course, during COVID, Netflix has this um, documentary called Drive to Survive. And it just sort of like was the culmination of like my upbringing and and something that I could do with my daughter. And so religiously, you know, a lot of people from my work know this, and I'm so thrilled that this year, JP Morgan is a sponsor at Formula One, and maybe they can hear this and let me go. But, but you know, I just, I love it. I honestly, and I can follow that. Like it's, it's 10 teams, it's 20 drivers. And I love the way that the car gets sort of altered and gets fixed and and they're adjusting all the time and then I love the mental game of the drivers it's kind of like tennis for me as well I'm like you see the athleticism but you also see the drive and the sort of mental preparation that goes into the race and how they evaluate it afterwards yeah I'm a I'm a huge fan I enjoy it a lot
0: you drive really fast yourself
1: (laughs) no that's that's my outlet because I got a kid in the car and I can't (laughs) I can't go above like 35
0: Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.